This episode is brought to you by Left of Boom. We empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence. Josh Hawes is a principal psychologist and technical director of Critical Components. He formerly served as a clinical psychologist in the Army with the Australian SAS and specialises in critical incident response and recovery. I've used Josh and his team in support of a number of workplace crises and in every instance, he and his team have delivered in spades. In this episode, we talk about psychological resilience, high-performing teams, and how to prepare, respond, and recover from workplace crises. Well, uh, ladies and gents, I'm here today with Joshua Hawes, who's a principal psychologist for Critical Components uh, and a former Army psychologist. Josh, welcome on board to Crisis Talks. Thanks, mate. Pleasure to be here. Happy to have a chat. Now, our history goes back a fair way, and and I can honestly say that the, the work that Josh has done with us for a number of clients uh, in some of the worst case situations has been phenomenal. The first first one of those was Sundance, which we spoke about in, in really podcast one and two. Uh, and you would have heard about Peter Canterbury talking about the requirements for psychological support and counselling support for the teams. That also extended to the families and, and having Josh and his team on standby and also going out to perform notifications. Uh, I've used Josh and his team, critical components, on a number of other occasions and they've been phenomenal. So, Josh, mate, uh, can you give us a bit of an overview on what the business is and what you guys do and how critical components can really support businesses? Yeah, absolutely, mate. So, critical components is a, uh, a mental health practice, psychology practice. We've got two arms. We've got more of the, the clinical counselling type arm where we get normal referrals, and then we've got more the corporate arm which provides both clinical support but also organisational support. Um, and what I mean by that, Organisations that have um, you know, any advice for critical incident management or psychological policy procedures, then they come and access support from us in that area. We provide a lot of policy development, a lot of psychological critical incident support, um, and a lot of advice to senior managers about what their requirements and, and their risks are and how to manage those risks. That's sort of what we do as critical components. We've got a team of um, really skilled individuals that make up that team. Um, and as you mentioned before, we've worked with you plus a whole host of other organisations, both um, regionally here in WA, we're primarily based at WA, but also nationally, and then we also get deployed internationally depending on the, the footprint or the nature of the job. So that's a bit of a snapshot on what we do. And the the work that you're doing in that pre-phase, mate, can you explain a bit more about that? Because I think that's really important for organisations to understand what sort of work they should or could be doing to help enhance the psychological resilience of their people. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> back in the day, so I've been doing this for about 20 years now, there was no real effective policy around this or, or legislation. Um, subsequent to that, or it's actually become a lot more topical, there's actually legislation around looking after the health and safety of personnel, in particular to your mental health of your employees. That's a pretty 
broad remit um, and most organisations have limited understanding of that. They have health and safety officers that look at, you know, controls and who's going to fall out of a bus and where to put your seatbelts on, but very few organisations really understand um, what the mental health requirements are uh, and the psychological support processes. So in each state in Australia, we've got legislation that dictates that. Um, my job primarily is to help organisations understand that and come up with process and policy that will, one, support their organisation, two, support their staff to make sure, you know, they're well-functioning and, and looked after. Um, but the third level is to make sure they cover off on, uh, I suppose, the legal requirements of looking after their personnel as well. So that's what we get brought in. Um, we have some very proactive organisations that go, hey, Josh, um, or they say hi to the team and go, what can we do? Um, we know this is an area where can we, we shape it in advance. Um, that's the probably the minority of the organisations. The majority of, of the organisations generally come and see us once they're in a crisis, partway through or right at the start and go, hey, Josh, what do we do? The, the proverbials hit the fan um, and we've got people that are floundering, our organisation's floundering. So what we do with those organisations is we do a down and dirty, for lack of a better term. We look at what they're currently at this point in time, how do we address that, what's the legislative requirements, what's the uh, social uh, licence to operate requirements, so what's the best thing to be doing anyway by the people and the community. Um, and once we get them through that crisis process, and that can be relatively short, a few days, right through to several months, if not years, um, then we also pick up the policy and procedure component, really just shoring up the pillars of the business to say, we've identified this as a risk and also if we look after it, it's an enhancer um, and this is what we're going to do to roll this activity out to look after our staff and our business in line with legislative requirements and, as I said before, social licence to operate. So the the legal requirements now, is that a, an extension really of what we, what we knew as health and safety? Yeah, correct. It sits under the Health and Safety Act. Um, play primarily with Western Australian one, um, and there's usually just a, a small bit saying you need to look after the health and safety of your personnel, in particular psychological health. Um, what that means is generally open up, uh, open for some interpretation, but people find generally find out um, that they've got it wrong after it's gone wrong, um, and that sets them up for a, a lot of pain, if that makes sense, organisationally. So um, we go to that as a primary, you know, bit to look at, but then we go, well, what, up, what actually optimises your team? What helps your team? What's your ROI going to be? You know, do you want staff transition? No, you don't. Well, let's put some process in place to help the organisation. Um, and as like with any policy, if we focus specifically on uh, psychological critical incident management, um, most organisations don't even know about it, don't consider it, and they don't have a policy and therefore they're not trained in that. And so then when something does happen, unfortunately it does, um, they're just completely overwhelmed by the whole process and in some ways very legally responsible. Yeah, that, that sense of overwhelm was one of the discussion points I had with Cameron Schwab the other day and, and often that sense of overwhelm can be self-imposed. Yep. When you're going those sort of pre-stages, there is a, a lot of those times where you're seeing either cultural issues or, or other issues just from the stress or, or the environment that the people are working in. So if we look at businesses that just seek support from us for organisational support, mm. um, then what we typically see is it comes about from a pressure point. Um, a lot of organisations that we deal with have long-term cultural issues. Um, they have very poor lines of reporting, which means that any issues that do pop up don't get addressed. Um, they have very poor accountability systems in terms of performance reviews or metrics or KPIs 
Um, and that generally just leads into the culture issue um, where we get a whole host of symptoms that pop up, for lack of a better term. Yeah. So our job just separate to critical incident response is we just go into an organisation and we go, what's the problem? What do you think the symptoms are? How, are you, how is it? We then dig back to what's the root cause stuff from a psychological point of view or a management point of view. We give them simple um, user-friendly process and strategies to address these things. Um, and we referred, or I referred to it at least as low-hanging fruit. What's the one or two things the organisation can do quickly, efficiently, and will embed within the organisation that will give them the biggest yield um, long-term? Um, and we roll in, we help organisations do that. Um, and what are those sort of things generally work? What are those sort of things generally involve, mate? The first thing is um, essentially it's, it's a scoping activity where we sit down with the senior management and go, what's the problem? Um, and that sounds really easy, but I've had many a conversation with senior executives and directors where they've spent, you know, several, you know, five or six sessions trying to nut out what the problem is. So the biggest thing is defining what's the problem versus what are the symptoms. So we, we're, most organisations are good at saying, yeah, well, Fred's bad or, you know, no one cares or we don't do that. But if you roll back to what the root cause is, once you find that, you only need a couple of solutions. So the first thing is identifying the problem. The mm -hmm. second thing is getting um, senior management buy-in. They have to care. They have to understand that doing it the current way is actually going to hurt long-term and it's not going to have a very good payoff. So once you get senior management buy-in or executive buy-in, um, then all we do is we essentially just look at what they're missing in terms of policy. Most organisations have a, a huge gap in this area. Um, if you look at their general physical health and safety policy, it's done to death. Yeah. Um, when you look at anything to do with, you know, culture or mental health or simple example, a lot of even government agencies have no policy on maintaining mental health or what do you do with a staff who displays at-risk indicators? So someone who may be displaying very old or aberrant behaviour, stating self-harm intent, displaying self-harm-based actions, and they've got no policy for it. And you're like, well, what happens if someone does? Well, we don't know. We send it to HR and HR goes, well, I don't know, mate. We just sit on it for a month. So we look at what policies there. Um, if there's an absence of policy, we just assist them in creating some basic policy and then we train those key people about what that means. And that's a big um, demystifying, destigmatizing activity. Yeah. Um, once you do those things, it naturally percolates through the business. So we can get uh, a very good yield so we can support the organisation, support the staff, um, reduce expenditure um, just by identifying the problem, getting buy-in, creating a simple policy and training a few key people and then they pick it up and run it themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's across a gamut of <clears throat> activities within the, you know, what they call the mental health or the org psych realm. I suppose the events like Are You OK Day uh, two weeks ago now and those types of activities are starting to bring a lot more awareness now to the mental health issues. Has that been a, a real positive sort of fillip for you and what the work you're doing with different businesses? Um, to, to be really frank, I, I think it's a nice initiative. Um, whether it translates to the organisations, I think it, to be honest, from my anecdotal experience, it doesn't. What mm. it does um, and what I've seen is peers support peers, and that's great. That is awesome. And if it wasn't there before, well, that's great. We have it now. Um, but it doesn't really prompt management to go, hey, do we have a policy about this? Um, are we actually training our staff in effective mental health or resilience or supporting your staff when they raise these things? It's the structural bit behind that um, that's lacking still. Yeah. Uh, so it's good that we're talking about it. 
Um, but what I have seen is some organisations just go, mate, oh, well, the staff can manage that. And you're like, well, sure, they, they sort of can, but you'd want to be helping them because they're your employees. They, they produce services for you. You want them to be at the top of their game and a little bit of love can go a long way to getting that employee to feel valued and committed and essentially providing more for you as a business. And, uh, and I think we had a, I had a really good chat with, with Bill Bestick uh, a good few months ago now talking about cognitive dissonance and mm. the, 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 the elements of positive thoughts and positive behaviour. How does that, has that become more of a discussion point for you now, mate, or is it still really just looking at the acute, looking at the problems and looking at those sort of issues? Uh, I would love it to go more towards the positive, prevent, and I refer to the positive stuff as preventative mental health activities. Yeah. Um, why wait for someone to be sick when you could do two little activities in advance and they don't have to get sick? Yeah. Um, there has been a slight twist towards that, but our, our current model with mental health in Australia is a very archaic one where we wait for someone's, someone to come in sick. And, in fact, you can only get referrals to see someone generally under, under Medicare unless, you know, when you are sick. EAP or employee assistance programs and good organisations um, sort of jump in ahead of that so you can actually go and seek support in advance, which I'm all for. Um, it's the stitch in time analogy. If someone's got a few little dramas and they want to tweak it right at the start, it's a couple of sessions. If you've got full-blown depression and anxiety, well, two sessions aren't going to cut it. No. Um, so I'd rather stitch in time. Organisations are picking that up a bit more. Um, there could be a lot more done in that space in terms of, once again, policy about that, um, proactive training, um, having clear lines of communication. So if people do raise issues at work, um, it goes through the appropriate channels or the appropriate people so they can get support as opposed to it goes to line manager and the line manager goes, yeah, I don't care. Mm. Or we'll get onto it six months later, nothing's been done. But definitely push in that direction, which is good to see. So we've spoken a bit about the preventative mechanisms or the things that businesses can do generally. What are sort of the top tips that you would say that organisations can do to help prevent? So stay left of boom in my context is about staying ahead of any risks or issues. What can organisations do to stay left of boom from a mental health point of view? If I had to pick two or or two or three, I'd say first one is how to manage um, personnel with at-risk indicators. Mm-hmm. Um, very psyche type terms for what happens when someone's not doing so well. How do I know it? Um, how do I speak to that person? How do I um, record or manage that? And what supports are out there? Super, super cool stuff. It literally saves lives. Um, yeah. So if an organisation could do that and adopt that, um, it takes a little bit of time and effort initially because people who might be a bit reticent or don't understand the process, um, you have to bring them up to speed. But once you've done this a few times, you're building uh, an inherent or organic capability within that business unit, which means that team gets stronger, that team gets more supportive, that team manages issues in a timely manner, which means it becomes a high-performing team, Hmm. even if you had people with issues. So having awareness and policy and and just education around that is a big one. Um, The second one would be psychological critical incident policy. Um, as, as much as organisations go through this all the time, we still get phone calls every week from someone going or an organisation going, we've got nothing about this and we have a person injured or killed or whatever. And I go, mate, where's your policy? And they go, about that, we don't have one. Should we have one? And we're like, okay, mate, let's have a chat after. Yep. So having a policy about that um, is just super vital. I'll, I'll talk to government agencies. There are so many government agencies that don't have them. And they're generally the government agencies have a lot more 
they generally have a lot more foresight and awareness about this, um, and yet they don't have effective policy. And if they do have policy, some do, um, it's a 45-page document that no one reads, that doesn't have a flow chart, that's not user-friendly. So if it's not user-friendly, you may as well not have one at all. Um, yeah, that would be the second bit. Not user-friendly? They're not going to use it generally? That's a, that's a case, isn't it? Absolutely right. You may as well not even have one, to be honest, because um, if you're doing it for a bump covering activity alone, then it's just it's got to be valid and actually help your personnel. Yeah. Um, and the third one is is training on this. Hmm. Um, we, we do organisations do request training. Oh, you know, can you tell us about depression? You're like, okay, cool, we can do that. But there's more targeted training, and then there's even best fit generic training that'll help organisations really understand it and demystify it. A lot of the younger generation, so I'll say sub thirty five. They understand mental health. They understand what it is. They understand the preventative nature. They understand that um, we're all potentially going to be exposed to it. And no matter how tough or strong or tall or short you are, you can pick up a mental health injury. So the younger generation are pretty savvy about it, but they're in organisations where the older generation don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't believe it or they're insecure about it or they don't think it relates to them. So we're seeing this dichotomy between the people that own and run and manage businesses um, who a lot of them happen to have their own challenge points um don't really understand how it should be rolled out for the younger generation who actually need a bit more support um, and access to the mental health support so there's a bit of a challenge with that so if we train in, in that area um, we get a huge return for the organization um, and some of the benefits are you keep your good staff for longer yeah staff that aren't so good they leave quicker um, managers are more empowered your team galvanizes you produce more products you can do more complex tasks um, so the benefits are huge. Oh, I think the, the communication benefits and the outcomes there, the, the general sort of um, happiness around the place, I think is probably the other sort of key thing there, isn't it? Yeah, good morale. Yep. Mm, well, that's what we used to call it. Um, yeah. What do you, you've worked across a number of organisations. You've obviously come from the military background like me there, mate. So um, what do you see as being some of the, better practices across those different types of organisations? Um, and who would you say is probably the best at this or best equipped for these sort of issues in general? In terms of uh, organisations experiencing them or support organisations? Uh, more the, more the organisations themselves experiencing them. So it's really, I yep. suppose, what, what would you, how would you compare defence and how they went about managing these types of issues there's been a lot of criticism, I suppose, more recently around post-traumatic stress and the effects on, uh, you know, we're 20 years on this week from, from East Timor deployment, those sort of issues of really sort of being um, well-publicised about the challenges they've had for veterans, et cetera, there. What do you think of the better organisations in, in managing uh, the psychological welfare side? Well, to, to boil it down, the organisations that do better are the ones that are prepared uh, it's a bit like if you play sport, uh, you're in a professional team, you'll fly to a stadium that you've never played in a few days or a week before and you'll do some training runs on that ground. Yep. Um, if I take that back to any organisation, you've got to identify what the key risks are and then also the consequence of this. Um, you mentioned PTSD. PTSD uh, comes at a huge cost to an individual but also comes as a huge cost to the organisation. If you lose a person to post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, I think work covered analysis and it was like over a million dollars um, of cost for the organisation, the community and the process if someone gets PTSD in the workplace. Yeah. So you want to prevent that. 
So first thing is know what your risk is. So organizations that know what their risk is, know what the hurt statement is, the impact to the individual and the organization, they're the organizations that then create some sort of structure and framework. So awareness, structure and framework, which is policy procedures. Then there's training to the managers that are responsible for this, but also generic training to the staff underneath saying, hey, guys, we're an X organization. We know that you guys could be exposed to risk. We're going to manage that risk through this process. Your managers are responsible for it. We want to let you know that if things pop up, you need to go and raise this to your boss and the boss can kick off the process. Those organizations are the best equipped. Um, When I look at military and I've served in multiple units, there were some units that were exceptionally good at this. Uh, They had clear policy. They had well-trained people. They knew that if you know, we lost three people to stress or PTSD or an acute stress reaction, well, our functionality is down. And that's primarily more towards the special forces units because they're small teams um, that would initiate a response early. People were trained and that action it very quickly and we get a very good outcome. Uh, the organisations that don't do that or they don't acknowledge the risk are the ones that sort of, they, you know, stumble along and sort of think they get it and then they pay the price 5, 10, 20 years later. And that's the same whether it's a, a military or a government or a private organisation. Um, and the other bit, and you'll probably attest to this with crisis management in general, you need to do rehearsals. Yeah. Um, there's no point being a fireman and going, yeah, I know all the, the stuff and I've got all my kit but I've never done a dry rehearsal or a live rehearsal or, a, or something that's simulated. You have to do it. Um, and I'll give an example of this. We did some training um, for an organization about asking somebody for suicide uh, risk awareness. And essentially the, the organization identified some people who may have been at risk. They said, we need some training. When we grabbed the senior team together, we said, hey, who's okay at asking people whether or not um, they've thought about killing themselves or suicide? And everyone said, oh, I'll be fine with that. 20 minutes into the training, two of the, the people broke down crying. And we're like, what's going on, guys? And they're saying, well, I didn't think it was going to be this hard. And we're like, this is, this is perfect. I'd rather you learn this process and know how difficult it is now in training than going to see someone who's at risk and then suddenly we've got two or three people at risk. So having that awareness, having that training, um, and there's another big bit, um, act early. Uh, I strongly recommend organisations to, I'd rather you initiate the response earlier, and that's not from a business or a financial point of view, just from a human point of view. I would rather you ask and initiate a, like a psychological critical incident process beforehand and find out no everyone's okay then leave it for six weeks six months and then lose two or three years staff and when I say lose two or three years staff not just from staff transition but they could die yeah um so I'd much rather and strongly recommend organizations have a, a graded process to go we think there's an issue let's initiate timely coordinated support give me a back brief reference to support do we need more yes no if it's yes great if it's no thank you stand down wait for the next activity. So there are organisations that do well. A lot of mining organisations um, do well, oil and gas. I think they're very cognizant of the risk. I think they're very cognizant of the impact of key personnel. If you lose one or two key personnel, whether it's for mental health or, or in illness or injury or death, uh, they're, in, they're in a world of hurt. So they're the ones, the more regulated organisations seem to do it better. When you, when you have an acute situation or one of the crisis events that we've been involved in, what's generally the first or the immediate action that you'll go through as part of that uh, initial response when you get activated? Yeah. So we refer to it as a, a psych CI, psychological critical incident. Um, we have 
various things that might trigger that. Um, most organisations trigger them on the later stage. It could be things such as a death, an injury, a near miss, um, someone's got an illness. As soon as we roll in, our first activity, we're a very what's well, a semi-structured process. Once again, military, forensics, working prisons background, I like structure. Um, first thing we do is we talk to the point of contact or the senior management team to get an overview of the task. The reason why we do that, so many times when we get called up to do a job, we get it third hand, fourth hands, Chinese whispers, and we hear one person has had an EMS. When we turn up to site, we find out three people have been killed um, and the families are all there and the media's there. Like, okay, things have changed. So yeah. first thing is uh, point of contact update. Who's, who's involved? What's happened? Um, where is everything? And that allows us to do what we call a concert, uh, concentric circle plan. We look at who's at the epicenter, yeah. who's in the next ring around that, who's in the next peripheral ring, and we keep going out. And that gives us a prioritization activity to go, do we have somebody that needs to be needs to be debriefed now or moved to hospital or, you know, take it home? Um, and that also allows us to work out the next phase. And we back brief this to the managers going, hey, guys, this is who's in our epicenter, this is who's in our next plot, and this is what we're going to do for those groups yeah. um, or the individuals. That then leads on to our next phase, which is essentially psychological education. The best thing I've ever seen. We used to do it um, in the military a lot. Um, for a critical incident. If the proverbials hit the fan, we try to keep most of the people in close proximity and then we talk them through adaptive coping skills, maladaptive coping skills, how to bond as a team. We're also eyeballing or, or looking at the people that are involved in the activity as well, management and staff, to sort of see who needs more triaged one-on-one support. Um, and we also get a vibe of what's the culture and the feel about the activity. That's yeah. super important because if you don't have an understanding of that, you'll be going in the wrong direction. I think I think strongly recommend. Yeah, that's a really critical one that I've seen now that you've applied now in those circumstances for Sundance and others, where you've where where you've got the team together first up. How important is that, mate? Because a lot of organisations think, oh, we can't force people to go through counselling support. But how important is to make sure that you are capturing the you know the those concentric circles, the the ripple effect or circles, like you said. Yeah, from my experience, and this is just mine working with HR firms and, and health and safety people, is the organisation has an obligation to their employees. Yeah. Um, and what that means is that the organisation actually can mandate them to get appropriate support. Um, so when HR people say to me, hey, look, well, I don't really want to, I go, well, in six months' time, if you don't do this process now, and they it goes through a litigious process, the people at the top are going to say, well, mate, why didn't you just get them to go see the person or why didn't you get them to the doctor? Does that make sense? It'd be like if someone cut their leg off and the person goes, no, I don't want to see the doctor. Um, and you <laughs> yeah. said, well, they told me I didn't want to see the doctor, so I let him go home and he bled out. It, yeah. it sounds ludicrus, doesn't it? It does. It's exactly, the same. It's, uh, it's exactly the same with mental health. And that's part of our job is to educate managers to say, well, mate, it's your duty of care. They're under, yeah. they're under your direction. You have to consider this. Now, that's okay if we talk to the person and, and they say, hey, Josh, mate, uh, you're too short, you're too stubby, I don't like you, move on. I go, yeah, mate, they didn't want to engage in the process. We provided this. We got them home safe, and we follow them up anyway. If they yeah. continuously say, bugger off, bugger off, that's okay, but we've done our due process. Yeah. Um, but in almost 20 years of that, I don't think I've ever had a person who said, bugger off. If you put your hand out and say, I'm here to help, they'll be polite, they'll be friendly, they'll eventually debrief about something, and they'll go, mate, thanks for the chat, but there's nothing too big. Those that do want support will firmly grab hold of you and go, yeah, I've got struggles. Um, and that's why we've got a sort of two-phase process. We have the concentric circle model where we do the 
the, um, the psychoed brief to as big a groups as we possibly can to make it easier to coordinate. And that's super important because you get to touch as many people in a good way um, yeah. with very low cost and time. It also demystifies who's talking um, to the person. Because if I said to you, hey, Grant, go see this psych or this counsellor, you'd be like, who is this idiot? Um, whereas if you get to see the person, you go, they seem like a normal guy, normal girl, you're more inclined to access that support. Yeah. Um, so psychoed is vital vital in so many different ways a lot of firms that i've uh, worked with in the past haven't done it so effectively um, they start turning it into a functional debrief or a blame session or a, tell me your feelings when you're 12 and it's, and it's nothing to do with that it's purely a psychoeducation brief what's good what to do to cope what to watch out for if it's not who do you go and see um, we'll come and touch base with you anyway and this is the plan going forward it usually takes about 30 minutes to an hour hour max if you've got a very um, open group. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does, absolutely. And and how important is that then? Because that's that first sort of intervention for one of a better. Do you use a term intervention in that case or is it, is it a different type of term? No, we, yeah, no, we just use, yeah, just um, psychoed brief. But it is, it's a, it's a touch base, it's an intervention and it's demonstrating duty of care from us but also from the organisation's point of view. How important then is that to be tied into the wider psychological recovery planning from the, you know, from the, I talk about it with the critical incident teams or the crisis management teams. It's not just about what's happening now and about the response to now. It's also now what's going to happen in a week to two weeks to a month to key anniversaries and milestones post whatever critical event that they've been dealing with. So how important or how much does that need to be nested into the plan by the crisis management team? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll roll Go roll back a, a component. So the first stage is the point of contact engagement yep. or management engagement. Yep. In that debriefing and prep session, we are literally writing up our concept of ops. It's what are we doing? Who are we doing it? Who's at risk? Who's not at risk? Here's the procedure. Here's our timeline, short, medium, and long. Now, that's a, that's a down and dirty plan. It's done in, in a few minutes while we're chatting. But that plan is back briefed then through to management. So then when we do the psychoed brief, which is phase one, of think of it as the intervention, we use the term, yeah. um, then there's a series of other phases that automatically roll out with some flexibility. But it, if it's not tied in at the start, um, and a lot of firms you know, that work in the space don't do it. Um, mm. I see lots of big EAP firms that, that say, yeah, I do you know, crisis management. They pop up and I go, mate, where's your plan? What, what are you briefing on? Yeah. Who have you briefed? And they're like, oh, no, we're just going to sit here and talk to anyone that comes in the room. And I'm like, mate, that's not, a, that's not an effective intervention, mate. That, no. You're not doing anything. No. Um, so that plan is super, super important. And if we pop in to do these jobs and then we have crisis management firms that are already there, then I need to have a plan to say, hey, Grant, you're doing this, mate. This is what we're going to do. Where do we interface? Where are we, um, uh, you know, are we stepping on toes? Have you covered off on that? And then we mutually support each other to get a win for the organisation and the staff involved. So planning is vital um, and it has to be nested from the start. Otherwise, we're just, we're just yeah, we're just making Doing it up as we go, yeah. which is wrong. Yeah, and, and, and to be honest, that's, that's a horrible approach for the organisation, the individuals and for the person doing it. What, um, so when you have a, a critical incident response and you're brought in on in that initial stage, you've made that initial sort of assessment, um, what do you sort of what do you often sort of see as the the different types of behaviour that that people might be exhibiting in those sort of circumstances? So, what are the things that you're educating on that they need to look out for? Um, so, well, the big thing is when we're meeting the management team, 
uh, versus the, doing the psycho ed. And then we, and after the psycho ed, we do one-on-one. So we roll back to the start. What yeah. we're looking for with the management team is what we train all our staff in is do they have um, understanding of the, of the process? Have they had any exposure, good or bad? Do they have a policy to run off? How are they coping themselves? Because generally the managers, um, the direct manager might be involved, but the majority of the managers are brought in from outside. That can have good and bad bits, but we want to know how well they cope because if you have one bad commander, one bad manager or a manager that's not coping, that's going to be magnified every level down. So what we're looking for is, is the manager coping? Do they have support? Are they clear in the process? Do they have effective command and control of the situation or are they just overwhelmed and shocked? Um, and we want to support them and put as much structure into them and, and control for them because that will dictate the whole rollout of the activity. If they fall down, then our point of contact, our conduit is broken, which means we haven't done our job well. Yeah. So that's the, the first thing. Then when we get to staff, we're looking for any, any overt aberrations. So psyche words for if someone's cooking off and getting super angry, well, that's something we need to look at. If someone's being overtly tearful, then that's the other bit. If we go on the third side, people that are just shut down. So when we're doing the uh, psych ed brief, um, we're literally watching. And if you've got multiple providers, even better, they can be watching the group going, mate, X was just not engaged in that at all. Yeah. And then that might be on our list to go, let's just go and say hi to X. And X might go, mate, I've seen this before, don't care, done this 20 times, blah, blah, blah. Transit police are a bit like that. Coppers are a bit like that. Um, fire is like, we've seen it all before. And you go, cool, but I'm still going to touch base with you to check it. Um, the overly angry ones, um, then we want to manage that symptomatology and go, what's going on here? What's pressed your buttons? And we've had cases where when the debrief was rolling out, you know, one person giggled and then one of the, the big guys who'd lost his mate said some very inflammatory comments to the young guy who was giggling and thought he was giggling at his mate's death. Long story short, there was almost an altercation and when we split it up, we educated both parties. Um, the big guy who was going to assault the young guy was, he's not giggling because he likes it. He's giggling because he's nervous and he's freaked out. Yeah. Uh, and, and the young guy was like, okay, now I get why he's angry. It's his friend. So that was killed. So we look for any aberrant type behaviors um, that we go, well, that's not productive. That's going to fracture the team. And you get a whole range of it. Um, and it's not always direct as well, Grant. You would have seen this. People cope very well in the first few days or weeks. And then seven days in, yep. the stalwart, the, the most stoic individual, just turns to water. And that's normal. Um, we just educate them about self-care and processes and what to look for in themselves and others. What sort of behaviours do you want to see from leaders in modelling the right sort of attitude and everything else from, um, you know, uh, not just in that immediate response but the longer term? Um, open about seeking support. Uh, leaders and managers that are saying, uh, and I'll give you an example. We'll meet the management team. We go to the psycho-ed brief and a really good manager will get up and intro the activity and the thing and say, hey, guys, we care about you. We've got these guys that have come in from outside to help us. Um, they're separate to us. You can debrief with whatever. Um, but I'm that committed to this process and I'm that committed to looking after me in order to look after you that I'm going to sit down with them and have a one-on-one. Even if it's for 10 minutes, I need to get stuff off my chest and I'll touch base with them periodically. Leadership through example is vital. Um, in addition to setting the tone, they also make it okay to have a chat about some of these things. Remember what I said before about over 35s as a general rule? Um, over 35 and male, you're probably not so open to discussing your mental health, if that makes sense. So we need to give people permission to actually talk about that, um, especially in male-dominated environments. So doing that activity from a leadership team 
is very good. And the other bit is to ensure that the leadership and the organisation understand that once the three-day activity is over, it doesn't just stop there. Yeah. Your duty of care for your personnel lasts well beyond that. Um, and if anyone's ever been through a grief process, if someone close to you has died, you're in shock for the first week. You're in functional mode. Yeah. It's three weeks, six weeks, 12 months after that you still need to be considering it and supporting the individuals involved. Yeah, Richard Harding, who was involved in the TIO bombing up in Darwin um, as a CEO, yeah. um, he said that um, uh, the impact on the organisation was, you know, good 18 months that he sort of saw and, and probably even longer for, for certain individuals. So when you talk about that ripple effect or the epicentre moving outwards in those concentric circles, then the effects can be yeah. felt for not just acutely in that immediate time but then a long time afterwards. So when when is it okay then for organisations to think about restarting and, and to have the discussions around recommencing or, or business as usual, those sort of things, um, which can tend to tick off people as well. So how can they have that and how can they manage that in an appropriate and safe way? So a, a typical example of a critical incident we, that we're involved in commonly, so there's an injury or a death, um, the high-intensity phase is usually about three days. Yep. About a day and a half or two days into that, there needs to be a very active consideration about when is it, you know, back to work as usual and, and what that looks like in terms of the new usual. It won't be exactly the same. So once again, you mentioned before about the planning, the nesting of these considerations have to be considered at the start, not in the first 10 minutes, but it has to be considered, well, what is normal function? Um, what's our productivity? What are we actually here for as a business? Um, you know, what happens if we all put tools down? Is it adaptive? Is it maladaptive? Um, most of the evidence that I've seen, and anecdotally as well, is that if you keep people gainfully employed with a purpose and a focus, it actually aids their recovery. There's a thing that we used to talk about in defence and in prisons when we're doing this called PIES, proximity, immediacy and expectancy. So you keep them closer to the scene. Um, you give um, as much support as you possibly can given the circumstances and you let them know that they're actually going to be okay. Within that, you want to keep them gainfully active um, so their mind doesn't just spin off. They still need time to debrief, but tools down, no, we're not going to deal with this, does not bode well for the individual, the group, the organisation, or for those that are impacted. So I'd be tying that in right at the start, and then you develop that plan further a few days into it, a few weeks into it. 12 to 18 months is something that you need to consider in terms of long-term timeframes. Obviously, that's a tiered response, high-intensity, less intensity, less intensity, sporadic, and then ad hoc. And we write that up in terms of our plans after the activity. If, uh, if an organisation has a critical incident, especially psychological, if they don't get a clear plan from their provider after saying we're at phase one of a four-phase activity, high intensity is here, this will look like that, that, and that, this will look like that, that, and that, and it's not clear and simple, have a chat to them because they're yeah. probably not providing you as an organisation or as a, a leader and a manager who, in this area that's not your own with enough clarity and specificity um, to achieve the outcome that, that you need as a manager. Is that because a lot of the focus for the organisation is just on the acute phase and getting some support in and then cracking on, or is it because of a, a general lack of awareness around what to do post those types of events? Um, I think initially there's that high surge where we just want things to be better. Yeah. Um, so we'll throw lots of resources at it. It's very hard to, to keep that intensity, which is normal and natural. So then once it dies down, it's almost like, well, shut that book. 
So there's that component. There's also a component too from a lot of the employee assistance programs that, that operate in this space, the bigger ones, um, they don't really have good advice and recommendations and plans. They get paid because their contract says turn up and be a bum on the seat. And, and I've, I've worked with them. I've written policy for these guys. Um, so they turn up. They're paid for someone to sit there whether they see people or not. And they go, we saw six people. Thanks. And there's no real, well, what's happening with the organisation? What can we do? Yeah. If you couple that with the intensity component, with the lack of understanding and knowledge by the individuals, and that's completely appropriate. If I'm, a, if I'm Josh and I make widgets and I'm great at making widgets, I'm going to know nothing about mental health preventative strategies or critical incident response. Mm-hmm. So you've got an absence of information or, or a lack of knowledge. You've got poor advice if not no guidance from the employee assistance programs. And then you have a natural process where people peak and they want a data dump because it's, it's just too overwhelming. That's what I think is the combination effect, but it leaves the organisation very much exposed, very much exposed, and the staff. With um, with the just shifting tack a little bit, mate. So to notifications. So you know, you and your teams have been part of notifications. So when we take it outside of that immediate concentric circle of people that are involved in the incident um, and the teams that were on the ground, particularly response agencies and those sort of guys. We then also look at the families and notification process for them. How important is it to have a very clear strategy on how you're going to notify and support families of the people involved in a critical incident? Firstly, extremely important to have a clear structured plan um, with clear timelines on who does what and why. There's a few different levels of notification. Uh, We break, break it up to missing or loss, so there's an event that's occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's any updates on any injury, if there's that case, and then there's fatality. They don't have to happen in that order. It could be all out of kilter. Um, the notification process is probably the one that I see that's done least effectively um, with a whole host of variety in terms of how it's delivered and why it's delivered. It's also one that has, from my personal experience, the most impact on families and loved ones, on staff as well because it's a representation of, of how they think they're being treated. And it also has a huge toll on the organisation if they're sending out a notifier, um, if that makes sense. So it's, it's the boss from the organisation that has to go and see Freddie's wife because he's lost an arm and yeah. Freddie's wife's at home with three kids and, you know, a baby due in three months and he's got to say, by the way, Freddie's lost his arm, he's in hospital and uh, we can't get you out to site or get you out to wherever it, where it is. So very, very important, very easily to go, to go awry. Mm-hmm. Um, and the impacts from that are very long-lasting um, for all parties, to be honest. Yeah, the, what would you say then is is the best practice? So we'll talk about injury, uh, correction, we'll talk about yeah. a fatality notification process. So what's the best practice uh, yep. that we've applied and, and that you would normally apply as well? So first thing is get the management team in the room. You'll obviously have other legal requirements that so you have to interface what, what we do in terms of the, the mental health world. Mm-hmm. We look at... When's the notification timeframe? We get always recommend a senior organisational representative go out and deliver the message. Yep. Um, that demonstrates good faith, care factor. I've had a lot of people within organisations go, well, it's not really under my remit. And I'm like, cool, I, I get it may not be formally lit, listed in your job description, but if you were the person at the other end, who do you want to hear it from? Hmm. Um, we also interface that with police. Um, there are some, some rules of who can tell who. But ultimately, I want police there, if possible. 
Um, I want the company representative there and then we send out a mental health provider for support. Um, and then once that information is delivered, we, we do a very structured process. So the person delivering the information has to just stick with their strict, uh, their script, sorry. And the yeah. reason they have a script is not to be silly, but it's probably an investigation going on in the background. They're emotionally, it's, it's a very, very hard thing to do if you ever had to do one. Yeah. Um, you're more inclined, the person notifying, to over-divulge information, which becomes a nightmare later on because, trust me, the people listening to it will hold on to every single word. So, And once again, it's hard. So we get the notifier from the organisation to actually have their key points. They deliver that message. And we have the police there for support if they need to cover off anything else. And then we have the welfare or mental health support team to pick up carriage of that so we can give that manager or the organisational representative time to, to bug out and leave and to compose themselves because they may have to do a couple of notifications. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm assuming you've done some. I've done lots. Uh, the hardest thing to ever do is to give someone the bad news, the knock on the door saying your husband's not coming home. So we want to make sure we look after all parties, not just the families, but the person delivering the message. I remember the person's delivering the message could be, they could just be the managing director or someone else who's great with finance. Or, so they're not geared or skilled in this in any way. Yeah, it's one, so of the more, we, yeah, it's one of the more difficult parts that we train as part of the crisis management training is handling that notification process because when it goes wrong, as we saw yeah. with Dreamworld, then you can yeah. see how the effect that it has on the organisation um, reputationally as well. So um, it is yeah. often a very raw and very difficult part of the training that we go through, but that process that you outlined there is what we did with Sundance with 11 notifications performed simultaneously globally. It's the same that we yeah. did for another. Um, I remember you had, we had your team involved in another one, which was um, uh, a mining fatality, and the the partner had been been recently separated, um, and she was a, a few hours south of Perth. So we had to coordinate police, you know, rendezvousing with you guys, and also with one of the reps of our team and the organisation that were doing the notification. Um, and in that particular instance, the police walked in, did their part, and then walked out. And if the, if we'd have let her um, receive that notification in that way, then she would have had zero support at that point in time. So I, I couldn't agree more, mate. It's so critical to have that plan in place. Um, but how how often do you find it though, too, that that organisations just aren't prepared for that at all? ninety um, percent. Um, and even the ones that are prepared, we go well. Where, where have you done the training? Where have you actually sat and said that to somebody in practice and practice? And they go, oh, no, no, we, we talked about it once. And you're like, mate, that's, that's – imagine going to war, having read some doctrine and talked about it with your mates. We're not <laughs> going to last the first five minutes. Um, so, yeah, and, we're, and we talk about this thing called emotional load or emotional content. Just telling somebody bad news is relatively easy. It's just words put together. But when we put, you know, a 1,000 pounds of emotional pressure with fatigue and no sleep – and angst, um, I've seen people turn into blithering idiots. So then you've got a notifier who's in tears with a person who doesn't understand who's receiving the information about a dead partner yeah. um, with two kids running around and you got, you're going, oh, this is not going to go well. So the preparation is vital. Um, when we do it, and same as what you guys do, we just get the notifier down and we, we just train them. We train yeah. them. We stick to the dot points. We get them to do it again and again and again. And that's not in any way to be callous to the person receiving it at all. It's to look after them so they get clear information. It's to make sure that we get that person who's being notified 
support, but it's once again looking after the person delivering it. I've seen a lot of notifiers end up with significant mental health issues themselves from being poorly prepared for it. And that's on the organization. They've got to anticipate that. And it's really my job or my team's job to manage that as well. Uh, difficult stuff, mate, and not made um, any easier, uh, unfortunately, even with the support there or with the plans or anything there. You're right. It's never uh, – the emotional toll for those is, is quite significant. So so what then is most important for, you know, the receivers and then also for the notifiers after those particular notifications? So after notification, we'll, we'll talk about the notifier. They get debriefed. They have to be debriefed, um, and that's allowing them to process what happened um, they're going to be surging with all these, you know, chemicals in their body, adrenaline. They're going to forget things. They're going to get it all wrong. They're not going to process it well, which leads to an issue. So if we debrief the notifier well after the activity, let them decompress, let them talk it out, um, do some adaptive coping strategies for them, they recover quite quickly because yep. they have a bit of a sounding board. For the, the, the person being notified, mate, we try to stay there as long as possible and get additional more localised and organic support in for them, meaning friends, family, uh, local mental health asset, um, community support around them so they're comfortable because they're the ones that are going to go through the longer-term process. Um, if given permission by the organisation, we we organise support and coordinate that support longitudinally for those individuals yep. to make sure they don't uh, fall through any gaps because just notifying them, even if you do it perfectly and you leave them high and dry, where's your social licence to operate? Because every single employee looks at that and goes, well, if I got injured or killed, what would you do with my family? Exactly. Yeah. So you, you're, you're setting the bar, you're, you're setting your care factor, um, and you don't want to drop that one. And to be honest, little, really little things like going to check up on somebody and organising a sister to come around or staying there for a few hours, it really does help these individuals immensely. It doesn't make the pain any less, but it, but it does help them. And I've had chats with people many years after and they went, you know what? Uh, I don't think I would have made it without that or I don't know how I would have made it or I still remember that and I, I thank X, Y, and Z for doing that. So very important. Um, and after that too, so you're looking then for that longer-term recovery plan for the organisation. That has to factor in those stakeholders all the way through too. So the, when you said longitudinally, what, what sort of support are you talking about there? So... Once again, during those, those mapping activities and the review of the plan, we're also identifying who the stakeholders are. Um, yeah. So that might be staff on the ground, staff that are in the management team, senior executives. It could be notifiers. It could be communities. It could be families that are in, all involved. So the plan, depending on the remit that's given to us on who's within our charter, we map out a plan accordingly. Things that we consider going forward um, are, you know, when do we inform the rest of the staff if it's a big organisation? Um, what sort of support's going to be given to that group? Is there going to be on-site support? Are we going to mobilise remote support and fly people out or fly people in? Do we need to do additional training in these areas because it's a bit of a hotspot now? Um, review of policy or creation of policy is also a big thing. Memorial services um, and key milestones as well, we look at those things. What's going to happen in 12 months? What's going to happen at Freddie's birthday? because Freddie was loved and we always have his birthday and we always go get on the booze. Mm. So those key milestones have to be mapped out. And then we, we as an organisation then go, well, this is our recommendation to support the team. Um, it's very, can be very tailored, um, but you're going to be, should be, from my point of view, providing support for about 18 months in a very limited capacity. Yeah. If that makes sense. 
Yeah, I think it's um, no, it's a really good uh, example for everyone, I think, because uh, we've heard it m- on multiple occasions now from the different interviews that we've done uh, that the, the, the longer-term recovery aspects are often the most forgotten or, or unfortunately, um, due to other organisational circumstances, they're, they're not addressed at all. So, so, mate, it's been a really good insight for us today to get it, firstly a great awareness on what are the, th- what are the things an organisation can, uh, can do to prevent and prepare for it. Um, it's been amazing to hear the story also about the best ways to, to respond. Uh, and importantly now, we've heard some great examples now, the way we should plan for the recovery. Um, two last questions, mate, to wrap us up. So, you know, if there was one one bit of salient advice that you could give to anyone around psychological resilience or welfare support in these sort of circumstances, what would that be? First one, and probably the main one that everything would flow from, is have a psychological critical incident policy. Not just a critical incident policy, a psychological critical incident policy. What happens when our people um, may not cope and they're overwhelmed? If you've got that policy and it's a considered policy, the rest will just fall out beautifully. Yeah, brilliant. That would be my one hot tip. Yeah. What about um, the other question I've been asking everyone, which is a bit of a bit of a side sidestep from what we've been going through now, mate. But what, you know, if you have one person out there that's been involved or led through a crisis that you could sit down and have a chat with, who would that be? Mm. Um, one individual I remember from a, a very big job that we did. Um, and it wasn't a person we led, but it was a person who was act- actively involved in it. This person was detained for a protracted period of time. And to give you context, a lot of people in this activity were detained. Um, some people had some significant dysfunction. This one individual, when they were released and repatriated and reunited with their families, was one of the most optimistic people that I've ever bumped into. What I would love to do going on from that is sit down with this person and say, really dig into a lot more detail what was it about them that allowed them to endure a very, very, very difficult circumstance um, for a long period and come out with a more reinforced mindset, more resilient mindset? And the other bit is seeing how much of that's retained, you know, several years after the activity. That's what I'd like to see more from a, you know, a theoretical point of view because I'm very much focused on what makes people more resilient and cope better as opposed to, you know, I haven't coped. I think there's a lot of really cool learnings from that that if we can extrapolate that out, we can make uh, build more capability within individuals, and we can push further in difficult circumstances. Yeah, brilliant. And what? And what um, I'll, I'll throw another one in there, mate, just for good measure. So, with the psychological resilience side of the fence, I'm fascinated by that as well. So, has there been any sort of key indicators that you can say of people that are generally more resilient than others, or is it? Um, and and equally, is there any others that that can respond? better to those acute situations because of these factors? Is there any of those you've been able to identify? Yep, yeah, a couple of key things, and, and you were interested in it. I was very much interested in this when I was at um, SASR as a regimental psychologist in performance enhancement. How do we, we build and grow people? The information that I've seen um, from research but also anecdotally and from interviewing people is that a high sense of agency is super important, so a high sense of perceived control, even in an uncontrolled environment, um, if they believe they've got some autonomy and control and agency to do something, um, then it massively improves their their capability, any recovery if needed, or not even a recovery, it's post-traumatic growth. Um, that's a really big thing. Couple that with 
a lot of difficult experience and exposure, not, not traumatic, but individuals that have had trials and tribulations that have, you know, had the tough times, kicks in the bum, failed at stuff. You put that with a strong sense of agency and these people just come out, come out glowing. Um, and it's amazing to see the disparity between those that don't cope and those that do. Um, and they're the two common features um, that I've noticed, which, which challenges some of the, the preconceptions about how do we build resilience. You know, you don't wrap people in cotton wool. Um, you've got to expose people to challenge to allow them to grow early on. So, yeah, very interesting little area from what I've seen. Mate, very fascinating. And uh, as always, it's been a real, pl- a real pleasure catching up again, mate. And uh, no doubt, uh, no doubt we'll uh, unfortunately have to cross paths, no doubt again in the future when we have an event. But suffice to say, I know, I know exactly the type of support we have got from you and your team. Uh, it's been amazing over those, those different incidents, those different crises that we've been involved in, mate. So thank you. And thank you for your time today on Crisis Talks. Not a drama, mate. Happy to help out anytime. And thank you for all the support that you deliver to organisations and individual clients. Um, maybe it goes at times unrecognised, but your support and the coordination allows us to do our job, mate. So perfect. Thank you. Go ahead, Josh. Take care. That concludes episode 17 of Crisis Talks. In next week's episode, we delve into the dark realms of cybersecurity. I'm going to speak with cyber resilience expert Bastian Treptel, the CEO of CTRL Group and podcaster known as the Cyber Hacker. We are going to explore all things cyber risk, what you can do to prepare yourselves for this emerging threat, the impacts of the GDPR regime, mandatory data breach notification here in Australia, how to manage a response, and how to manage your stakeholders in case of a major cyber crisis.